Heavenly Father, our hearts have been blessed. Your children's hearts have been filled as we have called out with our voices in confession, repentance, as we've proclaimed your majesty, as we've praised you. I pray that your word would fill our hearts that you would help us as we look deeply into your word this morning, that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness for your mercy and for your grace. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I'd like to encourage you to take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church service at this time. The rest of us are turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I grew up in a home with five children. We were all close in age. Girls, bookends, three boys in the middle. My mom would always say, you don't know what it's like to have boys unless you have at least two, and you don't know what it's like to have a tornado in your house unless you have three. And so that was my childhood. We made quite the scene wherever we went. I remember going to the grocery store and people looking and pointing as we marched behind my mom. The rule was keep up or you'll get lost, and that's what we did. I remember one point walking in the post office, and my mom, we had, I mean, obviously we were angels, but she was frustrated for some reason, and uh, we walked in, and she uh, sat us down against the wall, right in, in a line, and she said, don't look at each other, don't talk to each other, don't breathe on each other. And then turned to buy a book of stamps, and the man behind the counter said, Ma'am, were you in the military? (laughs) Vacation was always a a highlight for us as we would pile in our suburban, packed to the gills with clothing, with we'd put stuff on the roof. All seven bikes on the back with a with a bike rack just piled high every which way, bungee cords everywhere. So we made the three-and-a-half-hour trek from Rock Hill, South Carolina, Anderson, South Carolina, depending on where we were living at that time, to Charleston, where we would go to the beach every year. Halfway between our house and Charleston was a greasy drive-in restaurant called Rush's. There was nothing special about Rush's other than the fact that it gave you heartburn when you left, and that we would stop there every year, and we would only eat there on the way to vacation. And so when we got halfway between home and the beach, we knew that as we pulled into the parking lot that we were going to eat lunch at this special restaurant. We would always make quite the scene because my parents would get out, and then all of us would come piling out of the vehicle like sardines in a can and just opening it up and they all, all of us would come rushing out and then we would run to the entranceway to the restaurant and we would stop before we would go in and we would line up. There's something about lining up when you're a kid, right? That many kids always line up. Okay. Line up next to the entrance door. And my dad would take out his wallet and he would hand us each a $5 bill. Go down the line. And he would say the same thing. 
This is for lunch. I'm not buying you anything else. This is all you get. We learned to bring calculators with us. And we would sit and look at the, at the menu and we would calculate the best way to spend that $5. I mean, to the penny, including tax. And, and, and for instance, we would normally have two options, generally. You could either get a hamburger with French fries and a water, or you could get a junior cheeseburger with French fries and a milkshake. And you had to choose, what, what do I value more? Do I value more meat? Do I value the ice cream? And of course, your dad lives in luxury because he can buy whatever he wants, Right? We've carried on that tradition in my home so much so that one day my kids, one of my children said, I can't wait till I'm a parent. I can eat as much candy as I want. That's right. So we would sit there with our calculator and normally walk up to the, to the person behind the cash register and say, I want this, this, and this, and watch as those numbers tallied up to $4.96. Sometimes buying an extra sauce on the side just to try to get it up there. To walk away with as few pennies as possible. We became experts at that. Walking in, knowing what we have to spend, and knowing what we want to buy. We're going to go into a store this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6. You have a set amount to spend. It's your love. It can't be divided. Only one thing will reign supreme on the throne of your heart. And so we walk into a store this morning, and the store is entitled Under the Sun. It's life. I told Ben, if he ever opens a surf shop, it needs to be called Under the Sun. right? Under the Sun, that's the name of the store. And you walk in, and in your hand, you have your heart. You have your loves. You have your affections. And you have to place that on one of two choices. And it will cost you everything, because when the cash register rings rings up the total, it's going to cost you all of your love, because your love can't be divided. The world will tell you that it can, but it can't. A marriage never survives a divided love between two people. You will either love, as Scripture says, God or mammon. So it will cost you everything. And this morning with our calculator, we're going to calculate up actually what it will buy you. Because you're either going to place your love, you're going to place your affections on the side of wealth, money, possessions, popularity, notoriety, Or you're going to lay your love on the altar of Jesus Christ. Because you can't have it both ways. It doesn't mean you can't have possessions and have Christ. It means you can't love possessions and love Christ. It doesn't mean you can't have popularity and love Christ. It means you can't love popularity and love Christ. And so this morning we're walking into the store entitled Under the Sun And we're going to see what these two purchases will buy you. 
If I walked up with my $5 on one side, I would get a hamburger, a french fries, and a a cup of water. And on the other side, I would get a cheeseburger, fries, and a milkshake. And you can make the value statement, which one you value more. And here, if we place our love on one thing, we will receive something. And if we place our love on the other, we'll receive something else. And what Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8, all the way down through the end of chapter 6, shows us is it shows us what these two purchases will give you. What you will receive when you purchase the love of this world versus the love of Christ. I give you all of that as an introduction so you can hopefully see some of these things as we read the passage this morning. Let's take our Bibles and look at chapter 5 and verse 8, and we'll read all the way down through the end of chapter 6. If you see in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income is also his vanity, emptiness, breath. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. And all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot And to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. A stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite 
is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives his few days in vain? Excuse me, the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Lord, would you add a blessing to the reading of your word? May we have our eyes enlightened. In your name we pray. Amen. As we look at our text this morning, I want to ask, I want to ask three questions. These questions will give us the answers that we're seeking and will unfold for us the overarching purpose of this passage. Because the nature of the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see a lot of repetition. And repetition is needed. It even aids in learning, as we know. You'll see a lot of overlap from previous passages. And so rather than going in detail, verse by verse, which we could go, we've decided to approach Ecclesiastes, the entire book, in about 12 messages, which leaves us with a large pericope to look at this morning, this large section. As we look at this, we're going to ask three questions. Number one, if I have wealth... If I place my heart on the altar for the love of this world, what can I expect to be true about my life? In other words, what does the love of wealth buy me? Number two, if I'm content with the current state that I'm in, what are some qualities that will be true about my life? Or or the question could be asked this way, What does placing my heart on the altar of Jesus Christ, on the altar of contentment, buy me? Remember, we have these two two altars that we're working with here. We have these two purchases to make with our heart. We're going to receive something from these purchases. What is to be received here? The last question we'll ask is this. If I find myself lacking contentment, meaning that I am lacking happiness and joy in the current state in my life, how do I adjust my heart to find contentment? Or you could ask it this way. How do I gain contentment? Friend, if you're here and you have phrases swirling around your mind like, if only, or if I only was, or if I wasn't, or if I had, or if I just, or if I could, or if I couldn't. If you have phrases like that echoing around your mind this morning, question number three will answer that from you, for you from Scripture. I want to give you one brief note before we look at this passage. I want to be very clear that there is no virtue or righteousness to be found in poverty. In other words, just because you uh, are, find yourself in a poor condition does not make you more righteous than a person who finds himself in a wealthy condition. Money is neither moral nor amoral, but it can be u- neither moral or immoral, but it can be used immoral or immoral ways. Put it this way. <laughs> Money's not good or bad, but you can use it to accomplish good or bad. Okay? 
Wealth in and of itself is not a sin. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see those whom God placed his hand of blessing on uh, exceeding in riches as they loved God first and foremost. Does that mean that when you love God, you're going to be rich? No. But it means wealth in and of itself is not a sin. There's no virtue or righteousness in poverty. Wealth, success, possessions are not sinful. Your heart is seeking happiness. The problem is this world tells you that you will find it in wealth and possessions. If you don't saturate yourself in Scripture like we're going to do this morning, your sinful heart will be enticed by the things of this world. And so please don't mistake what I'm saying to construe the truth to say that there's somehow some sinfulness to wealth or possessions, friends, there's not. There's danger to be had. And we'll see what the love of money purchases you. Let's look at this question and say, what does the love of money buy you? Question number one, what does the love of money buy you? We're just going to go through this passage. I think I have eight listed here. We'll go quickly through each one and support it from Scripture 7, actually. Number one, the love of money buys you. You can feel free to write these down if you want. You don't have to. They're not inspired. Delinquency, oppression, and injustice. Delinquency, oppression, and injustice. Verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 are confusing at first glance. Remember, this is wisdom literature, which means often he's speaking in in poetic ways to talk about the wisdom of Scripture. And in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5, he he shows you that the love of money really brings in delinquency, oppression, and injustice. If you see a province, the oppression of the poor, violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. Look at verse 9. This is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. A high official, verse 8, watched by a higher. What in the world is this talking about? This means, well, what he's saying in this poetic way is that when, when, wealth, when the love of wealth is present, those who are wealthy look out for other people who are wealthy to the detriment of those who are poor. The managers look out for the managers to the delinquency of those under them. That it's, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'm working as hard as I can and making 12 bucks an hour. My manager won't give me a raise. He doesn't really do any work. Meanwhile, he's making, he's living high on the hog. He just hired someone else who has no experience to also be a manager. He's taking care of him, but they're not taking care of me. The oppression of the lowly. This was put on display to an even greater extent. When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes as you would have serfs and slaves who would sell themselves because of indebtedness and you would have the masters of the area who would make a huge living over those who were slaving under their care, often treating them terribly while living in opulence. Very rarely, if ever, is a person made extremely wealthy by being nice, kind, merciful, and giving. If you've ever met a very successful businessman, you've probably met someone who rubs people the wrong way. 
Jordan Peterson will tell you that if you want to be successful, the enemy to being successful is being nice. Very often, those who are extremely successful, not always, but very often, those who are extremely successful are those who are willing to run over anybody in order to make a dollar. That's what this verse is telling you. That if you love money, you're sacrificing caring for the needy. You're sacrificing caring for those who are less fortunate. The second half of verse 8 reminds us that those in power are more concerned with others who are in power rather than looking to those who are suffering. And verse 9 reminds us that even though it's the day laborer who's slaving in the fields, it's the king who's rewarded for cultivating the fields. Number two, as we place our heart on the altar of loving money, we're actually hopefully not going to make the action. We're just calculating what all it will get us if we do this. The first is that it will get us delinquency, oppression, and injustice. The second thing that it will purchase for us if we choose to buy the love of the world with our heart is that we are choosing to purchase a desire for more. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Look at chapter 6 and verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Look at verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. You desire for more and more will never be satisfied by getting more things. There's nothing in this world that will satisfy you once you obtain it, ultimately. There's no income level in this world that will be enough to make you not want more. If you get a raise, what's the first thing you normally think of? How am I going to spend it? How is, my, how is my living going to increase as my wealth increases and it just so happens that my take-home pay remains the same or even less after all my expenses? That as I make more, so it just gives me a desire for more. John D. Rockefeller evidently was asked this question, what is the most satisfying million dollars that you've ever made? And his answer my next million. He should have listened to Thomas Watson, who lived way before John D. Rockefeller. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, Riches are the golden bait by which Satan fishes for souls. That's good. That's, where, that's almost inspired. That's worth writing down. I'm going to say it again. Riches are the golden bait with which Satan fishes for souls. Your heart was created to love. Your heart was created to desire. That pull that you feel, the desire to love something, the desire to put all your eggs in one basket, 
the desire to be all in. God created you with that. But he created you so that you would find the fulfillment of that in him. Anything else will not satisfy. When this love is directed at the things of the world, you will eventually come up empty. Your desire and love for wealth and your desire for a greater income, friend, listen to me carefully. If you place your heart on the altar of your love for the world, if you place your heart on the altar of a love for wealth and a love for higher income, you will eventually sin in order to get that. The act in and of itself is an act of sin. It's an act of covetousness. It's an act of idolatry. But it will lead to more and more sin. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Quoting from the New Living Translation. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered away from the true faith. They've pierced themselves with many sorrows. A desire for more. Keep your heart with all diligence. Because out of your heart flow all the issues of life. Rather than placing your heart on the altar of the love of wealth and possessions, friends, we desire the things that are above. If then you've been raised with Christ, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, seek the things which are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Why? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. Because you have died. That's why. You've sacrificed yourself on the cross of Calvary with Christ. The old man is gone. You've been given the very life of Christ present inside of you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. Seek the things which are above. A desire for more. What's the third thing you're going to receive if you purchase the love of the world with your heart? You're going to receive deceitful friends. Deceitful friends. Look down at verse 11. Excuse me, verse 11 with me. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see all of that happening with his eyes? Chapter 6 and verse 2, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Friend, if you have wealth, one of the struggles of having wealth is you never quite know who your friends are. There'll be a line of people who want to spend your money. If you purchase the love of wealth with your heart, you're going to receive a lot of deceitful friends. Those who will tell you that they're your friends, those who will tell you that they love you, who will come up next to you only to take from you. 
the wealth that you've cherished for so long, what you'll buy is the benefit of having others enjoy it. You ever notice that when you have something other people want, you all of a sudden have friends that you never knew about? If you were to come into a great inheritance or receive a large sum of money, no doubt you would receive contacts from college that you haven't heard from in 20, 30 years. Hey, how's it going? I've really missed you. I've been thinking about you. I've just been so busy these, these 25 years. I just haven't reached out. Man, life just gets away from you, doesn't it? You want to take me to dinner? You know, or whatever. I don't know. But that's the way life works. If you pursue the love of money, you are pursuing relationships with deceitful friends. If you don't have anything, it's really easy. In order for people to love you, they really got to love you, you know? You get nothing from your relationship with me. So, you only have genuine friends. In fact, when persecution comes and suffering comes, you find out truly who your friends are. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. One of my friends started a company several years ago, and the company really took off. It was a brilliant idea. Two or three years into it, he sold the company, having become a national company and then an international company, and so he sold it, recognizing that he was no longer in the place to be able to lead the company and made a fortune off of the company. And within a month, it was amazing all of the people who were also starting companies who wanted his capital. Will you invest in me? I have a great business deal for you. Do you know who your friends are? You want, you want to make sure to confuse who your friends are? Place your heart on the altar of loving wealth. Number four, disappearing resources. Disappearing resources. You can't lose money you don't have. Did you know that? You can't lose money you don't have. Keeping the money you do have could be one of life's most difficult endeavors. Mark Cuban said it this way. One of the hardest things to do after making your first million is protecting that and not watching it disappear. You can't lose money you don't have. But if you have money, you can lose it in endless different ways. We have a, a bathtub that has a, a, a rubber stopper that somewhere along the way either got warped or has a little teeny tiny hole in it. And if it's not turned just right, the bath water leaks. And so probably three, four times a week, we'll fill the bath water up for, for our little or smallest Prisca and she'll get in the bath and then you hear a, Daddy, the water's leaking. And you walk in and you hear, she says, listen, and you hear it trickling down the down the drain, right? Our finances are kind of like that, aren't they? You look at your bank account and your wife says, honey, the water's leaking. What's happening? You can't lose money you don't have, but if you have money, you can lose it in so many different ways. 
chapter, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 5. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. You ever made a bad investment? If you make investments, you eventually will. That company you thought was a guarantee didn't turn out to be such a success, did it? That person who guaranteed you a return on your money if you would just trust them. One bad choice. Verse 14. His riches were lost in a bad venture. He's the father of a son. He has nothing in his hand. He came from his mother's womb. He shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil. He may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils after the wind? You came in this world with nothing and you'll go out with nothing. Wealth has a way of sifting through your fingers just like sand. Matthew chapter 6, Therefore don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust destroy, thieves break through and steal. One day, they're either going to be ruined or they're going to be gone. Cars are going to get stretched. Here, they're going to be rusted. Houses are going to leak. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. The thieves do not break through and steal. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a statement of fact. What you treasure, where, excuse me, where your money is, that is where your heart will be. If you want a heart change, put your money somewhere else. Take it on as a family that you're going to support a missionary that you know and love for $200 a month. That you're giving of your regular tithes and your offerings to support the ministry of the local church here. You're giving to, to support other ministry endeavors. And above all of that, you say, I've got an extra $200 a month. We should go, you know, buy a new car, start a new lease. No, what would happen if you identified a missionary and you supported a missionary for $200 a month, you think you would want to know what they're doing with that money? You think you would read their prayer letters? Absolutely you would. Because every month when that comes out or when you write that check, you're going to go, I wonder how that's being used. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Wealth has a way of just slipping away. I mean, a month ago... The company FTX was worth $32 billion, the crypto company. Did you see that happen this week? Today, it's bankrupt. Ten days ago, Sam Bankman-Fried was worth $16 billion. That's with a B. That's a lot of money. And today, he's worth zero. The future of the crypto market, one of the most sure investments for the future, absolutely tanked last week. And if you're invested in crypto, you know exactly what I mean. I'm not, okay? Not because, anyway, it's another story. I'm not giving you financial advice. I don't do that. You go talk to a financial advisor. I'm just telling you, wherever you choose to invest your money, you do that to the best of your ability. You do that with wisdom, but don't tie your heart to it. There's a class action lawsuit being filed against FTX right now because guess what happened? The money's just gone. It's gone. Overnight. It's gone. I got really interested in this this week and I went down the rabbit hole a little bit. I read about these guys who have these hard drives that have uh, Bitcoin on them. 
right at the very beginning, I don't know how Bitcoin works, I don't understand it, but you just have to trust me because I just read it and it's on the internet so it's true. And, um, and the hard, these hard drives are locked with a certain password. And after 10 tries, it erases or it locks forever. And they put the Bitcoin on there years ago when it was worth $10,000 and now it's worth $162 million and the guy forgot his password. True story. It's on the internet. And so he is currently, he's on his eighth try. He's got two left. And it's gone. It's gone. It just has a way of disappearing, friends. If you take your heart and you buy the love of this world, what you will get is disappearing riches. Number five, distraction of the mind and discomfort of soul. No rest, no peace. Chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You know what that's called? It's called fiscal heartburn. It means that you're so full of stuff, you get heartburn. The result of wealth being transitory and your heart being placed in something that's transitory gives you fiscal heartburn. If you have lots of money invested and you don't care about it, you'll sleep well. But if you have lots of money invested and you care about it deeply, guess what's going to happen every morning? You're going to check the markets. You're going to be invested in, your heart is going to be in there. Your emotions are going to ride the roller coaster, friend. You're going to lose sleep over something that you can't control. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Someone who comes in every day of that time period, they would work all day, they'd take their money, they'd go buy the groceries for the day, they'd go home, they'd pay their rent, they'd sleep. They'd go back and do it again the next day. And if that job fell through, they'd go get another job. You can't lose money you don't have. They slept well. When you eat too much, you pay for it with heartburn. And if you possess too much wealth, often you're so full of money that it's constantly in your mind. Friend, if you can think of nothing but the wealth you have, it may be time to diversify that wealth in a gospel endeavor so it's not on your mind anymore. It may be time to take that wealth that's keeping you up at night and put it somewhere that's earning gospel fruit. Fiscal heartburn. What about the one who's not distracted by wealth when the market's turn is not as directly affected so he sleeps well? He sleeps like a baby. Do you remember the first house you bought? I want you to think back. I'm not talking about renting. I'm talking about like owning. The first house we bought, the windows were boarded up. The gutters were falling off. The siding was falling off. We bought it in a, in a 
like a bidding war and a short sale because it had been used for drug activity in the back of this neighborhood, gone into foreclosure, nobody wanted it. It's like a DIYer's dream and a wife's worst nightmare, right? And so we found this little house on the back of a cul-de-sac on this, this nice little lot that was just terrible looking. And we didn't have any, we just got married, didn't have any money. Like, this is it. We ended up buying it for like a third of what the uh, price was that, that it should have been going for because the way, and we didn't know this, but evidently there was some crime that had happened there. We were new to the area. You know, take off the, true story, take off the siding. We found a bullet lodged in the siding that was facing out, like it had been shot from inside. Rebuilt the whole thing. I remember laying in that house after we bought it and sensing, this is mine. And then we had the first rainstorm. Right? If you're a homeowner and there's a rainstorm or a windstorm, what do you think about? What are going to happen to my shingles? What are going to happen to my siding? Is my roof going to leak? Is my sump pump going to work? So what do we do? We set up these water alarms everywhere, right? Now we can link them to our phone. When I was renting, I couldn't care less. You know? But all of a sudden, when I buy it, when it's mine, it's fiscal heartburn, friends. That's what fiscal heartburn is. It's saying it's mine, and I'm afraid it's going to go away, or I'm afraid it's going to break, or I'm afraid something's going to happen to it. So it keeps me up at night. That's what a love of the things of this world buys you. Number six, chapter six and verses four through six, death still comes. Friend, no matter how much money you have, death will still come for you. Your money cannot buy you one more day on this earth than God has ordained for you. Many people have tried. Solomon even says that in verse, in verse 6 of chapter 6, that if you could live for 2,000 more years, guess what? You're still going to end up in the grave one day. You're all going to go to the same place. We all will. Because death will still come for you. I don't often do this, but we have time this morning. Take your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, it won't be a long time we're there, so just listen. But if you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 5. Genealogies are really fascinating. I know some of you are like, yeah, I don't think that. Um, I want to show you why they're fascinating. We talked about this a little bit last Christmas. This Christmas, I'll be preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, by the way, Matthew's Advent story. So if you want to start reading that, I'm excited to be able to look at, at what Matthew says about the advent of Christ. Look at verse 5. We're going to read, when I pause, actually let's do this. We're going to make it really easy. Um, you're going to see the phrase, and then he died, multiple times. And every time we're going to say it together, Okay? So I'll stop, and then we'll all read it together, just for effect, okay? 
Verse 5. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. Let's read it together. And he died. Seth lived 105 years. He fathered Enosh. Seth lived, he fathered Enosh 807 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan eight. 115 years, and other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan lived 70 years, he fathered Mithalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mithahalel 840 years, other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Get the picture? Good, let's keep going. When Mahalahalahalahalahalahalal, however that goes, had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. This guy lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all his days were 895 years, and he died. When Jared lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. You know what? this is drawing your attention to? Nobody lives forever. When Enoch lived 65 years, verse 21, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Another focus of the genealogy there. Methuselah had lived 178, 187 years. He fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years. Other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Verse 31. Then all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And then Noah. Scripture. All of it's inspired? Yeah. All of it's profitable? Yeah. Friend, you may be worth more than anyone else in this room, but one day we're going to stand on your grave, those of us that are alive, and we're going to say, and he or and she died. Number seven, your destiny is still set by God. The end of chapter 6. Whatever has come to be has already been named. It is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. That's a great way of saying you can do whatever you want, but you can't argue with God. Because cancer doesn't care how much money you have. Alzheimer's doesn't care about your portfolio. Dementia could care less how much property you own, and heart disease doesn't look at your bank account before it comes knocking. All of these destinies are totally out of your control, no matter whether you have $100 in your bank account or $100 million, because your destiny is set by God. So if you place your heart on the love of this world, your destiny is still set by God. You don't, you don't buy your own destiny. You don't buy your own ends. Does wealth have its benefits? Absolutely. 
Friend, if you have wealth, there are experiences you can have, people you can meet, and luxuries that you can enjoy that others can't. Are any of these sin? Absolutely not. Wealth can be such a blessing when used for the glory of God. Ministry can be accomplished through your local church. Missions endeavors can be, a sport, uh, can be supported that could otherwise never be accomplished. People can be given access to the Word of God like never before. And you can have a part in that, friend. The only guaranteed investment is to invest in the church because God will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, any investment that you make in gospel endeavors are guaranteed investments. They'll be blessed by God and you'll be blessed as a result. If this, is this a give and get message? No, it's not. It's give and watch God bless. That blessing probably will not be money back in your bank account. That blessing is going to be a heart full of joy and happiness and fulfillment and watching God work. Friends, listen to me. God is going to build his church. Our prayer is that we will have front row seats to see it happen. And you leveraging your wealth for the purpose of the gospel with no strings attached gives you a front row seat to watching God do what he does. Does God need your money? No, he doesn't need your money. But do you need God to have your money? Yes. You get to see him work. Wealth can be a blessing, but it comes with its burden. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind. Friends, wealth is a weight. And encourage you to memorize this proverb, Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. Number one, help me never to tell a lie. Secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9, verse 9. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. So we walk into the store of life entitled Under the Sun. Your love, hopefully, I've convinced you from Scripture not to purchase the love of the world. So we take our hearts and we purchase the love of Christ. We're all in with God. What does that buy us? Number one, rest and peace. Rest and peace. Sweet sleep. God has taken care of you. If you're a young professional, I want you to listen very carefully. One of the best things you can do is to find a seasoned saint in this congregation and to take them out to breakfast and to ask them lessons that they've learned about money in their life. It's not a secret, friends, that the majority of the giving in our church is given by our senior saints. Not because they have the most money, but because they've realized where to put their wealth. They've realized where joy and happiness comes from. That God has provided in the past and he's going to provide in the future. Just 
just this week, I heard of, of a friend of mine who was going through financial hardship. He gives to the Lord. He gives to missions. He's not well off financially. I mean, he's not in poverty, but there's a need coming up in their family's life that, that wasn't covered for them financially. Nobody else knew about it. And out of the blue, a distant friend for no reason other than gospel love, gave this family a gift that met that need. They've been praying and praying and praying, and lo and behold, here it is. That's how God works, friends. He will provide. That doesn't mean that we're all going to drive Lexuses and Rolls Royce cars, right? That doesn't mean that we're all going to be Wealthy and healthy, it means that we have rest and peace inside the plan of God. Listen to this psalm written by Solomon, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman lies in wake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep doesn't say don't get up early in the morning and work hard and go to bed late. It says don't eat the bread of anxious toil. Worrying, caring, laying your heart on the altar of the love of this world because he gives his beloved sleep. Your responsibility is to be faithful to God, work hard, live a life of righteousness, love God supremely above all else, do your business dealings with integrity, act in wisdom to the best of your ability, and then let God be God. There's a parable given in Mark 4 that I've claimed as the theme of my ministry. I claimed this about four years ago when preaching through the gospel of Mark. It's called the parable of the seed growing. I, I love this parable. It's short, but it's awesome. I want you to listen to it, okay? Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of corn in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in a sickle because the harvest has come. I love this because it gives this idea of this farmer who goes and he plants and then he goes to sleep. He wakes up and he goes, hey, look at that, it grew. How did that happen? And he's just faithful. And he goes back and he looks and it grew even more. He goes, whoa, look at that. You're just faithful. Harvest time comes. He's just been faithful in his work. He didn't generate growth. He's just being faithful. And then you look at harvest times here and you say, God, how did you do this? How did you do this? For faithfulness, friends. The specific application of that parable is given regarding the gospel meaning that you sow the seed of the gospel over and over again and people start getting saved and you say, how in the world is this happening? Because I just sowed and went to sleep and woke up and here we go. But the application of that kingdom principle is far-reaching. Be faithful. Love God above all else. Sacrifice your heart on the altar of Christ. 
Don't, don't sin in your business dealings, no matter if it's going to put you ahead. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put all your eggs in the basket of scripture. Get to know God. Secondly, joy. Rest and peace. Secondly, joy. It's what, what we get if we put our heart on this altar. Joy. Joy and contentment comes, verse 18, in recognizing that work is a gift from God. Enjoy your work. Secondly, in verse 18, joy and contentment comes in recognizing that your days are short. So use them to the best of your ability. I'm going to do everything I can to the best I can because my days are short. I'm living for Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm in, in my work and everything I'm doing, I'm doing everything to the best of my ability. I'm living in integrity and righteousness. Joy. Thirdly, acceptance. Look at verse 19. There's a phrase there to accept his lot. The word lot means portion that's been allotted to you. We use this word in the same way. When you talk about land inside of a housing development or if you're going to purchase a lot, it simply means that there's a a portion of ground with certain boundaries that is allotted to you. It is your portion. It is your lot. And here, Scripture says that when you place your heart on and you purchase the love of Christ first, what do you get? You get acceptance for the lot that God gives you. God has allotted your life, whatever that means, friend. As your pastor, I know your stories. I love you dearly. And I can look across this building and just, I can see blessings and I can see pain and suffering and grief and seasons of life for some of you in which it seems like nothing can go wrong and seasons of life in which it seems like nothing is going right seasons of sickness and health seasons of birth Seasons of death. Seasons of weddings. And seasons of divorce. And you look at your life, and and you may have this phrase bouncing around your head, Lord, if I was going to write my story, I would have written it differently. Like when I was a child, and I thought about my life, I didn't see it going this way. I didn't see this. I mean, I thought I would be married by now, or I I thought I didn't think I'd be single again. Or I thought I'd have money. I mean, you're supposed to have money at this point in your life, right? I mean, I've worked my whole life. Where did it go? I thought I would own a house by now. I I didn't know that I would have already been bankrupt twice. God, I would not have written that my children would walk away from the faith. If I would have written my life, I would do it differently. And Solomon in his wisdom is calling us to take our hearts and to place them here and say, God, I'm all in with you, whatever you want. And what I get from that is an acceptance that God loves me And that God's little lot that he's carved out for me in this area called life is my best. It's what's best for my sanctification. 
that God loves me and he's given me the best thing in my life. He, he's given me exactly what I, what I need. And it may be hard. It may be, it may be the hardest thing that I have ever been through. It may be so hard I can't, couldn't even imagine grief this deep. And yet God says, friend, this is your life that I've ordained for you. Would you find me in it? Would you use the circumstances in your life to draw closer to Christ? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, once again, the writings of Solomon, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make those paths straight. He will guide you. Number four is, is a really interesting blessing that many people don't think about. Look at verse 20. Chapter 5 and verse 20. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What does God give you? He gives you a sweet forgetfulness. Like the mother who labors through the birth of a child and then later wants to have another one because there's a sweet forgetfulness. That the pain and the grief that is so strong now with truth and with time, God will heal. That it will never be gone because the things in our life, everything that happens shapes us into who we are. And the grief of that loved one who's gone will never be totally absent from your heart. But as you live life in the small lot that he's apportioned for you, one day you will find a sweet forgetfulness. As you find acceptance with what God has given you, the pain will slowly fade and the blessings that God gives day by day will be more and more present. So how do I gain this contentment? You're sitting here and you go, I, I'm sitting here with my heart and I go, man, I'm torn because my heart is pulled one way or the other. How do I, Pastor, how, how do I do that? I want to, like I'm drawn. The, if you're a Christian, listen to me carefully. If you're a Christian, then, then the very life of God inside of you is compelling you to sacrifice your heart for Christ. That your flesh wages war with your spirit. And if you're here and you're a believer and you're exposing your heart to Scripture, there is at least some sort of pull that is drawing you to this. How do I do that? How do I change what I want? Is the question. Number one, identify yourself first and foremost as a disciple of Christ. Actually, let me back that up. Make that number two. Hopefully you didn't write it at the top. Number one, confess and repent. Confess and repent. If you have been living with your heart, loving possessions, loving this world, the first thing you need to do is you need to confess and say the same thing God says and say, God, that's a sin. It's covetousness. I confess that. Repenting is to turn. So I'm turning to you. Confess and repent. Secondly, identify yourself first and foremost as a follower of Christ. 
The only possession you have that someone else can't take away is your heavenly passport. That's the only possession you have. Everything else people can take away. They can even take away your life. But they can't take away heaven. And so that, first and foremost, is my identity. Friends, I'm not a husband first. I'm not a father first. I'm not a pastor first. First and foremost, I'm a disciple of Christ, and that drives everything that I do. That means that as a husband, I'm a follower of Christ who's a husband. And I'm a follower of Christ who's a father. And I'm a follower of Christ who happens to serve as a pastor. And you need to align your life the same way. Because you are first and foremost a child of God. And your heavenly passport is the only possession that you have that nobody can take away. Number three. How do I change my desires? You get to know God more. As you know more about God, you will love Him more. Probably, or possibly, perhaps, one of the reasons why you love your wealth more than God is because you know the markets more than you know your Bible. When I was a youth pastor, my very, very first service I was getting to know all the teens, and a guy, one of the teenagers, came up to me. He introduced himself, and he says, uh, this was down in Indianapolis. He says, my name's so-and-so. I can tell you every player and every stat on the Indiana Pacers team. I said, that's great. Can you quote the Bible, uh, books of the Bible from start to finish? And he looked at me like I was an alien. You know, and I was actually being super snarky. That was not like a, 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 a spiritual response at all, Right? But, can that be said about you? I mean, we said, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, and you go, okay, now, which one is that again? But you can list everything on the market, so you know exactly where your portfolio is. Maybe that's one of your problems, friend. Because as you get to know God more, so your love for him and your desires for him will be deepened. Fourthly, pray that God will change your desires. You can't change what you want, but God can. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Pray that God will change your desires. God, change me. Help me to want you. Fifthly, Recognize that everything in your life is a gift from God and he's provided for all of your needs. We all have far more than we need. Far more than we need. We have so many things that we want. And take a step back and recognize that God's provided for all of that. Number six, see yourself as a steward rather than an owner. A while ago we did a series on stewardship. We talked about how we're a steward of our bodies and a steward of our finances, a steward of our time. We use the illustration of a, of a culvert, of a pipe. Don't be a pond that things collect in and it just begins to stink. 
and smell and grow weeds. Be, it, be a river that flows and you say, God, these are your resources that you're giving to me and I'm passing them on to others. And I'm get, taking these resources and I'm passing it on to the work of the ministry. And I'm taking these resources and I'm passing it on to those in need. I'm not saying that you give away everything you have and go live in a cardboard box. I don't think any of us are at risk of that, okay? None of us are at risk of giving away too much. See yourself as a steward, not an owner. That everything you have is temporary. Take time this week to be thankful for what you have rather than spending time thinking about what you don't have. I'm going to give you the thesis of this passage. I've saved it till the end to try to build a case. And so if you've been sleeping, please wake up now. Just the main thing. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 9. I want you to look there because this this is the key to the whole shebang. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Now, I'm going to read that for you in the NLT. Listen to this. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Here's the theme of the service, the theme of the, the whole passage. You will discover joy and contentment in your life, not when wealth or possessions are increased, but when your desire for them is decreased. Because what happens is when you take your heart and you take it off the love of the world and you buy the love of God, God changes your desires. He changes what you want. Because when you delight yourself in the Lord, he, he gives you desires in your heart, the right desires. And so my challenge for you this Thanksgiving week is to catch yourself. Don't wish for anything you don't have. Don't talk about anything that you will have in the future but you don't have now. Don't cast your heart into something that is not currently in your life. Spend this week ridding yourself of the desires of what you don't have and say, God, slay those desires because Chapter 6 and verse 9, better is the sight of the eye. What I have, what is here now, than desiring what I don't have. The key to contentment is not getting what you want. It's not wanting it in the first place. Mortifying the desires of the flesh. The desire for that thing you want so more. God, take that desire away. Happiness does not come from acquiring more, but from desiring less. I can't think of a more applicable message for the week of Thanksgiving. God's outlined it this way. We're just continuing our journey through Ecclesiastes. But to say, you know, this week, when I spend time in thankfulness, I'm going to be thankful for what I have. Not vainly and empty emptily dreaming for something that I don't. 
but finding contentment as I place my heart on the altar of loving God supremely and finding contentment and rest and peace. Father, thank you so much for the message, the, the message of this passage. We thank you so much for these scripture truths which show us the upside-down world of Christianity that we gain, we gain by losing, that we live by dying. And yet again, that we find happiness by pursuing you and you alone. That we would identify ourselves as disciples of Christ. That we would be thankful for what we have. That we would not take our heart by the love of this world, for with it comes weight and care. But we would take our heart and we would buy solely the love of God. And that with that we would find 